Welcome to a special Canada Day edition of Famous Lost Words as we kick off season five. Unbelievable. Woo! With the stories behind some of the greatest Canadian songs ever written. I'm Christopher Ward. With me, my co-host, the brainchild of this show, Mr. Tom Jokic. Hey, Christopher. It really is great to be back for season five. Um, you know, in the, mm-hmm. probably about two or three episodes into season four, I said, yeah, I think that's it for the season. This will be the last season. But you and I love our show as, ma- as much as any other listener does, and so we just couldn't give it up. <laughs> and in this episode, we've uncovered so many great stories that we actually have to spread them over two episodes. Part one is today, Canada Day. Happy Canada Day, everyone. Happy Canada Day. And part two is this weekend. And of course, if you miss an episode as it airs live on the radio, you can always get caught up with the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It's two full episodes celebrating the best music this country has ever produced, from Rush and Bare Naked Ladies to Gordon Lightfoot and Shawn Mendes. Well, and given the potpourri of artists and styles that we're going through over the course of this show, you're going to hit on some songs that have deep meaning for Canadians. Songs that have virtually no meaning at all. <laughs> um, but, then, but then sometimes those are songs that became the, cl- the classics, yes. right? Yeah. There's quite a variety of tunes coming up here, Tom. And, Christopher, mm-hmm. you and I will talk about the number one song that you wrote, A Worldwide Smash. I'm so excited about talking about that song and so many others. Well, I can't wait to just make up a story, too, for you. (laughs) We're going to kick off this extravaganza of Canadian hits with Rush, of course. And the song, Tom Sawyer. Getty tells a good story about this song. It's a song with an unusual provenance that ends up sounding a bit like a misheard lyric. When we were in uh, Phase One Studios recording Battle Scar with Max Webster, uh-huh. uh, Pai Dubois gave us a copy of a song or a piece of poetry called Louis the Warrior, which he thought we might be interested in doing. So uh, Neil sat down with these lyrics, and they were very interesting lyrics, so uh, Neil sat down with them and sort of arranged them more to our format, and uh, the song became Tom Sawyer, and we wrote some music for it, and... Uh, it turned into a wonderful song. Neil went through and, uh, yeah, Neil, and changed the odd bit here and there. Yeah, and you know, wrote some lyrics on his own and mm-hmm. preceded some of the, the thoughts that were in uh, Pie's piece. A Monday warrior, mean, mean stride. Today's Tom Sawyer, mean, mean pride. From 1981, that's Rush and Tom Sawyer. You can see how the original lyric by Pie Dubois would likely be a bit too out there for Rush. Mm-hmm. So Pai Dubois writes Louis the Warrior, Neil Peart gets hold of it, and turns it into a great lyric in what is about to become a Rush classic in the coming weeks. So I want to point this out. Most of these clips about the songs are the artist talking about the song as it's being released, as it's coming out. And so they have no idea. Geddy Lee has no idea that for the next 40 years after he talks about this song, that he's going to be singing that song and it'll be the song, perhaps, that Rush is best known for. Instead of Louis the Warrior, it became Tom Sawyer. I would love to hear the Louis the Warrior version of the song. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. Because, you know, sometimes there are early versions of songs, which, if you know the writer, they will unveil for you in, a, in, a, in an unguarded moment. I heard uh, Dan Hill played a version of Sometimes When We Touch that was nothing 
nothing like the version that eventually came out and was yeah. a huge hit. Yeah. You know, I talked to um, Chantal Kreviazic recently about a song that she did with Drake on his uh, 2012 album called Take Care. And the song was called Over My Dead Body. And I told her that the hook that she wrote for that song, and she's on the song, and then the rap that that Drake does on it just makes it one of my very favorite hip-hop songs. And she said, you would not believe what the original version of that sounded like. And she kind of teased me by saying, I'm going to send you the stems for that song, the roots, the origins of that song. And then she kind of, I think, backed away because I think she knows about this show and she goes, yeah, they're going to end up running that on the air and that's not what I want. (laughs) (laughs) Well, of of course we would. (laughs) Now, let's go to Tom Cochran. Tom, this is an interesting tune. A deeply meaningful trip to Africa resulted in a song that is extremely celebratory, but it could just as easily have gone in a completely different direction. You know, I wrote it just after coming back from my African trip and, uh, you know, I went through some pretty heavy changes over there. You know, we, I probably lived more in those three weeks than any other two- or three-year period of my life. And uh, so I came, you know, you come home and you go through a lot. Of, you, the major culture shock is when you come home, not when you're over there. And uh, I came out of this, this two- or three-week period. I did a lot of press for World Vision and that, the uh, World Relief Organization I went over there with. By the way, they do wonderful work. Uh, so in no way do I want to disparage their work by saying that, you know, I wrote Life's a Highway. is It's probably my happiest song, and I wrote it because, I, I you know, the one thing that I was left with was, you know, that feeling of, of, of joy that the, the, uh, the people, you know, managed to, uh, to find in the simplest things over there. So in spite of all the hardships in that, um, you know, you could find... You know, they, they would live for the moment when they could, you know, and uh, it's something that I wasn't prepared for. I was prepared for a lot of the, the, the tough things and the hardships that, that I would see, but I wasn't prepared for people that were that resilient, and that impressed me a lot. And I came home and I thought, man, we find everything to complain about over here, you know. <laughs> so I, wanted, I just wanted to write a song that would, would, would make people feel good and make them realize how short life is and that, you know, you can even turn the most negative thing into a positive experience and that it does nobody any good if you get bogged down in guilt you know or sidetracked in self-analysis you just got to keep moving ahead on your individual you know road in life on top of that you know when when they do find that you know in africa we were at at one point you know you're seeing people that are that are uh, critically ill that have seen their families butchered in front of them by the renamo gorillas for instance in in mozambique and dying of starvation this one little girl louisa you know she had been in huddled in her hut for about a week she was on the verge of starvation and you know two hours later we're singing and dancing with 200 300 kids that were in pretty rough shape themselves you know maybe a month two months before so it's amazing how resilient people over there but it always culminates in dancing and singing so life's a highway is probably the closest i've ever come to a uh, uh you know a, a dance rock song you know mm-hmm. and, and that's the ultimate form of expression i think in of joy in the world no matter where you go Life is a Highway, Tom Cochran. Wow, from such horrors and tragedy comes one of the most celebratory songs you can imagine, just as you said, Christopher. And by the way, that song was originally partially written during Tom's time with Red Rider, and it was called Love is a Highway, but it remained unfinished until Tom traveled to Africa with World Vision. 
Cool. Okay, Christopher, what do you got next? Well, this is classic with a capital K. Um, <laughs> this is you know, this is Crowbar with a capital C yeah. and um, a song called Oh, What a Feeling. And everybody could sing along with this one. Yeah. Uh, we get to talk to uh, the late Kelly J, front man for the band, and he unpacks a multitude of meanings in what you might have thought was a very simple classic Canadian song. Well, uh, you know, I've been accused many times of, of it being drug lyrics, and, and of course it was, because, you know, <laughs> pot was 20 bucks an ounce or something, and, and of course that had to be part of the thing. But what it really is about is the 1969 is when we wrote the song. We had finished playing with Ronnie Hawkins. Uh, I think the last real big gig we played was Fillmore East with Joe Cocker's Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Mm-hmm. We had the bass player, Roly Greenway, Roly is sort of, if you listen to What a Feeling, he's he's laying down the whole mm-hmm. thing. Everything's built on top of him. Now he co-wrote the song? Yes, he did. Yeah, yeah. Actually, the, the entire band wrote the song, but uh, I'll never admit that because I'm taking royalties and that's that. <laughs> i got to have something out of this. Was so. this was this song completely written before you recorded it, or was there some improvisation going on in that song? I, w- I would say that we'd been performing it for a while, for a couple mm-hmm. of weeks. But basically, at the end of 1969, when I came to write lyrics and things, uh, all I could think about was the end of the Vietnam War, uh, the end of Nixon. Um, you know, uh, the Vietnam War was was a very, very tragic thing to uh, for even for Canadians to go through, if you had a conscience at all. Man walked on the moon. Mm-hmm. Boy, I, there was a... If you go through an old Life magazine from 1969, it, it's mm. amazing. It was quite a year, wasn't it? It was incredible. Yeah. Woodstock and the Woodstock. thing with the Rolling Stones there and the you death go. of that, uh, all of that person at the concert. Yeah, sure. So it, basically it was a summing up of, of all of those parts together and thinking that, oh, what a feeling we've just... And plus uh, my daughter Tiffany was born... October of that year, and so, and and that's when we wrote the song actually in October when uh, dur- during the time that she was being born, and and so uh, it was just an amazing set of coincidences that with the stars all aligned in the seventh house, and uh, yeah. we had a convergence, you know, and uh, <laughs> after the alien ship went back to the mothership, it uh, it left over a feeling. Absolutely a classic, Crowbar from 1971, although it was written in 1969. That song was so popular and influential that when they issued a special box set celebrating the history of Canadian music in 1996, they called the set, Oh, What a Feeling. Remember it well. Yeah. Hey, listen, was it just me? It seemed to be kind of an odd tongue-in-cheek comment about writing credits that Kelly made there. It's true, because he says... Oh, yeah, the other guys wrote it, but I'm keeping all the songwriting credits, and I'm wondering if the other members <laughs> Oops. of the band found that as funny as he did. And by the way, Kelly, uh, I was there when we did this interview with him. It was uh, conducted by our good friend Roger Ashby. Kelly is a great guy. He worked in radio for many years. He was well-known in the industry, and uh, he passed away last year in 2019 at the age of 77. But what a great song and what a great storyteller. Yeah. Still much more to come on this special Canada Day edition of Famous Lost Words. Up next, Christopher and I get set for a battle of the ages as we discuss the (laughs) hard-hitting subject of great pop songs. (laughs) This is the Canada Day edition of Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. So, Tom, 
There's a question that is sort of essential to this very show. <laughs> what is the okay. greatest pure pop song in Canadian history? Oh, is it, okay. Is it Snowbird by Anne Murray? Pretty Lady by Lighthouse? If I Had a Million Dollars, Bare Naked Ladies? How about Don't Want to Fall in Love by Jane Child? Oh, a yeah. massive one hit yeah. wonder from the 90s. Yep. And then, of course, there's the question of what is pure pop? Right. I mean, I was thinking of, uh, like, like is, is Rise Up a pop song? Yeah, I think I would classify Rise Up as a pop song. Of course, it runs a lot deeper because it has a deep meaning embracing progressive change, I think. But yeah. Yes. And and to me, that song was, well, not only emblematic of an era, but also uh, has endured very, very well. How about about Sugar Sugar? I mean, that's a pure pop song if there ever was one, right? Pure pop song. Perhaps the original... A Canadian, like, almost bubblegummy pop song. Yeah. Oh, lo- I love oh, that song. Definitely. Very <laughs> chewy. And I have one more for you. This is this is a little bit obscure. Do you sure. remember a song called Loving You Ain't So Easy? Oh, Christopher. Michelle Pagliaro. Uh, with yeah. that, uh, honestly, that is truly one of my very, very favorite Canadian songs. Me too. Oh. I love that song. I, it's a, It still thrills me to hear that song. Uh, me too. So for you, yes. I want to hear... Ding, what is your number one pure pop Canadiana song? Oh, it's easy. For me, it's this one. Hey, I just met you. From 2011, <laughs> a huge hit from Carly Rae Jepsen. Mm-hmm. So when Carly dropped by to visit us, the song, Call Me Maybe, had just started to take off. So this is really interesting because it had not yet become the international phenomenon that it would become to top the charts in 16 countries and become top five in many, many more. Right. A kind of worldwide hit that very few people can possibly imagine. Okay? So when she visited the radio station, we started by asking about her past. Is it true you got a bartending job by by singing for the manager and he hired you based on your singing ability? Well, he didn't base me, uh, hire me based on my bartending skills, that's for sure, because <laughs> I, I don't know how to make anything. But yeah, it was uh, at the media club in Vancouver, and he thought that it would be kind of in between singer-songwriter job rather than just uh, uh, making terrible drinks, which I was quite good at. Your song is number four on the Chum Chart Top 30 right now. Wow. That, that's, that's fantastic. Yay! Number four. Good for you. And on its way up. Now, what is the story about Justin Bieber and Selena Gomez tweeting about you? Yeah. I, it's kind of wild. Um, I found out through my sister kind of screaming uh, uh, through the phone at me, but I went to check it out and she was right. They had tweeted about the song and... Uh, Saying how much they liked it. That's that they really liked it. It, mm. it, it blew my mind. It, was, never have, uh, it never hurts to have that kind of an endorsement. That's a great yeah. endorsement yeah. to have. Yeah. Isn't that great? I owe them a big thank you. Yeah. It's, uh, it's amazing. So, Christopher, you've called this song lighter than air, and I could not agree more. <laughs> it's a great song, though. I do, that's not meant in a disparaging way at all. It, it's a great, memorable... I mean, you know, just as a songwriter, it, writing those really joyful songs... Yes. That's, that's the hardest thing to do. It's much easier yeah. to write a more morose song. And, you know, Christopher, I'd like to make a point a little bit about pop music and even bubblegum pop. And those songs are largely dismissed as disposable. But I heard Call Me Maybe this morning on the radio, and it sounded fantastic. And I recently heard Mm. Sugar Sugar, 
by the Archies, and it sounded fantastic. And I'm, yeah. I, I, you know, there's something timeless about those songs when it's funny because they were they were seen as disposable, and sometimes the really psychedelic stuff from the late '60s was seen as stuff that was going to have more uh, that had more meaning was going to have more staying power and it didn't and i would even suggest that songs by you know the music of bands like the progressive genesis and yes and jethro tall they those are great songs but they do not stand up the way some of the pop songs with this pop sheen you know they were they're very cleverly crafted they do not stand up as well don't sound quite as great as these pop songs. I'm shocked that I, I myself am saying that, but I believe it. Well, you're saying you'd rather hear the 1910 Fruit Gum Company than Procol Harum is where we're going with this. Okay, you kind of got <laughs> me there because absolutely not. <laughs> I'll, I'm I'll sorry, take, that was, that that was, was terrible. Great. I take that back. No, don't no. take that back because you, you've actually made your point very well. Um, because I'd, uh, much, I'd much rather hear Conquistador with Procol Harum with the Edmonton <laughs> Symphony Orchestra, then I want to hear Ooh, yummy, yes. yummy, yummy, I've got love in my tummy, right? And I don't, I don't care for that song. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Well, I'm glad we brought this up. Okay. So just back to Carly Rae Jepsen for a sec. Have a listen to her performing Call Me Maybe in the studio live during that visit. Hot night, wind was blowing. Where you think you're going, baby? Hey, I just met you. And this is crazy. But here's my number. So call me maybe. It's hard to look right at you, baby. But here's my number. So call me maybe. Oh, I just love that slightly gruff but sweet voice in that version. By the way, Carly was 26 when that song came out, even though she did sound much younger. Great stuff. Carly Rae Jepsen and Call Me Maybe. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Today we're celebrating Canada Day with a collection of stories from our archives about the greatest Canadian hits ever. We've heard from Rush and Tom Cochran and Carly Rae Jepsen, but now let's go back to the new wave era of the early 80s. Oh, how I love that song. One of the first big Canadian new wave hits. It was the perfect combination of tuneful and twitchy. Just like all the best <laughs> new wave songs were. You know, whether it was uh, Teenage Head doing Let's Shake or uh, Martha and the Muffins doing Echo Beach. Martha and the Muffins from 1980. Great song. I, I like that. Tuneful and twitchy. It's kind of <laughs> like the cars or... Yes, uh, yes. Talking Heads mm -hmm. uh, and Martha and the Muffins. So uh, we have an interview with Mark Gain. He's one of the M's in M plus M. Mm -hmm. And he reveals the real location of the very magical Echo Beach. Echo Beach starts off the album and it is the big tune. Is it a real place or is it imaginary? It doesn't exist. Uh -huh. um, a lot of people would like it to exist. Yes, in fact, we were um, on stage at the Marquee and somebody shouted out, where's Echo Beach? <laughs> and it almost felt like we were disappointing them by oh, saying yeah. it, it's a, it doesn't exist. It's more about a state of mind rather than a place. It's about the space people keep to themselves that allows them to function in those situations. Because um, I've had lots of horrible jobs. And I, I know there, was, there were some that were so boring, your body could do it day after day. But your mind would be way off somewhere else and 
that's what that song's about. An absolute monster song in the summer of 1980, Echo Beach. It was also very successful in the UK and Australia and elsewhere. Funny, I always thought that song was produced by Daniel Lanois, Christopher, but it was produced by Mike Howlett. Right. Who was best known for working with uh, Flock of Seagulls, uh, Orchestral Maneuvers mm. in the Dark, The Alarm, China Crisis. And I didn't know this, but I was a big fan of a lot of his work because I listened to all those bands. After that, by the way, uh, Martha and the Muffins had a number of smaller hits in Canada as Martha and the Muffins, and then as M Plus M. And another great song of theirs is Black Stations, White Stations from 1984. And they were a mainstay on Much Music when you were playing videos. They were, and they did remasters of all of those great records in very recent times, and Mm -hmm. those things just crackle. They sound fantastic to this day. That is a very powerful song, and it stands up all these years later. Uh, From 1976, about a tragedy from 1975, that is The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald by Gordon Lightfoot. Now here, Gord talks about the pressure to get it right in the lyric of that song. The idea came from the Newsweek article. It it appeared uh, in uh, about the third week of November in 1975. I got hooked into a an interesting sort of chord progression and melody line, and I got something going, and I said, no, I said, I'm, I'm dealing with something where, where people are bereaved. So I said, I better make it good, and I better make it right. And there was a couple of times, I must say, uh, while writing that so much, I worked on for about three days, where I was ready to give it up because I, I didn't know if it was going to have enough credibility. So when it became a... When it made it, like, in the top 40... Uh, we started getting mail from all of the relatives. And uh, I believe that with the exception of one or two cases, most of the people felt that, uh, or got the idea that it was like a memorial or like a... To me, it was a topical song, but to them it was a memorial. And uh, it just never really dawned on me that uh, a song of that kind would would make it like it's a hit song, but nevertheless, it was still going to be on that album, and it still had to be right. When I interviewed Gordon several months ago, Christopher, we talked about that song, mm-hmm. The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, and how it was recorded. And Gordon and the band went through the song one night in December of 1975. But Gordon didn't like the format of the song, so he spent the whole night restructuring it. You can just see him noodling through it. And then he met the band the next day and explained the changes, and they played it in one take. Wow. So the version that we hear, the new newly restructured wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald is played in one take and that is astonishing to me. It'd be interesting to talk to the players from that session to see if they had any sense of the profundity of the moment and yeah. what they were doing and, and, and that sort of sense that maybe they were part of, of, of history making. That's right. I think sometimes people do have that sense, rarely. Usually it's much later they go, well, we had no idea. But sometimes in the moment, and I'm thinking, you know, the way life works and how fastidious he is about his work. And, of course, you know, the level that he'd already attained in terms of success at that point. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those songs, you, I mean, the moment you hear it, you never forget it. And, you know, his determination to get it right continued long after that song became a hit. 
Um, and when I say get it right, I'm talking about the factual details of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, the, the event. So he has made revisions to the lyrics over the years to make it more accurate. That's amazing. So yeah. few writers would bother to do that. That's right. That's I mean, right. there are some there are some writers that restlessly do change lyrics to songs. Hello, Bob Dylan. <laughs> um, I took my daughter to see Bob, and he did a version of um, one of my very, very favorite Dylan songs of all time, like top five for sure, Tangled Up in Blue. Right. And he rewrote the lyric. And I'm thinking... Bob, you restless creative fool, you. Come back. <laughs> but you know what? The new lyric was great, too. How do you argue with it, right? Yeah. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic, and this is a very special edition of the show where we are talking all about some of the greatest Canadian hit records ever made. This is so much fun. It's really interesting to hear them as a group, the diversity of sound and uh, intention and and instrumentation and everything is just so different and covers so much territory, Tom. I'm loving this. Absolutely. And, you know, some of these clips have aired in previous episodes, you know, just little snippets here and there. But we thought we'd put them all together. But there's also a number of clips on this week's show that have never aired on Famous Lost Words. And quite frankly, that's what the lost is in Famous Lost Words, clips that have not been heard in 30, 40, 50 years since the interview first aired. And so a lot of this will be brand new to a lot of people. So let's get back to it. As we heard from Gordon Lightfoot, sometimes lyrics are very important. But as we are about to hear from Ed Robertson of Bare Naked Ladies, <laughs> sometimes they are just utter nonsense. But as we also know, so many people in North America know the lyrics to this nonsense song. Gonna make a break and take a pick out like a stink and they can shake out like vanilla. It's the finest of the flavors. Gonna see the show cause then you'll know the vertigo is gonna go cause it's so dangerous you'll have to sign a waiver. One week from Bare Naked Ladies in 1997. There you have it. And songwriter Ed Robertson tells a great story about this happy accident of a song which just happened to become Bare Naked Ladies' biggest hit. One of the big highlights I think happened in 1997 when One Week became one of the very few Canadian songs to hit number one on the Billboard uh, Hot 100. It was a huge record. What did that song mean for you guys in terms of popularity, acceptance, that kind of thing? It meant a lot of different things because One Week was actually a song I didn't think was going to be on the record. Oh, okay. Um, one Week is a song that I improvised into a camera and then transcribed it. Okay. So <laughs> I wrote that song in two minutes. Right. Did and you write the whole song? Yeah. Okay. So that in itself, like the lyrics for that are hilarious. They don't make any sense. They don't, but it's about a broken relationship, <laughs> yes. right? And so, you know, the fact that it could be so fun and still be based on that is amazing. Yeah. So that song was, um, I thought might be a fun B-side for yeah. one of the singles uh, or like a bonus track on the record. And... When Sue Drew, as I mentioned, this was our first time dealing with an A&R person at a record company, an artisan repertoire. Mm -hmm. um, Sue, I remember, called me and said, we want to lead with One Week as the first single. And I actually laughed. I thought she was making fun of me, <laughs> you know, because I wasn't sure it was even going to be on the record. Right. But it was a real uh, realization for me that this uh, silly, spontaneous thing that we only do live – 
can actually be part of what we do on the record right. as well. Absolutely. Because we'd always thought, okay, the studio is the temple and everything's got to be perfect and everything's got to be polished. And then live is where we just go nuts. Mm-hmm. And so that was the first time where they melded, really. Mm-hmm. And that, that silly, spontaneous thing went down on the record. That's amazing. And it's, uh, you know, it's our only number one in America. That's great. Oh, it was so much fun talking to Ed Robertson of Bare Naked Ladies last year. And you know, what he says there really rings true. You hear that about a lot of hit songs. The artist didn't even think it would ever see the light of day. It wouldn't be on the album or it definitely would not be a single. And then it just takes off. And, you know, we've talked about this before. You hope that the song that takes off for you is a song that you can stand. Right, <laughs> a song, a song that you're not going to yeah. mind singing for years and years and years because you know that every once in a while, uh, the artist's biggest hit is not a song that they love. Coming up next on Famous Lost Words, a song that all Canadians love. Hmm, that's a challenge, <laughs> especially anyone that's ever picked up a guitar. For sure. Plus, pop star Shawn Mendes digs deep to write a massive hit song that tackles a very serious subject. This is a special Canada Day edition of Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward as we celebrate the biggest Canadian songs of all time. Christopher, it's not easy to write a number one hit. You've done it, and we're going to talk about that experience in a moment. But first, let's talk about another Canadian rock classic with guitar. from 1974 Taking Care of Business. Undeniable Fred Turner and Randy Bachman Taking Care of Business. Fred and Randy tag team here in telling the story of a jam that became a smash for BTO. Randy had written a song uh, with Taking Care of Business as the hook, Mm -hmm. right? And it had a lot of chords to it and such like. And one night when we were playing a club in Vancouver I lost my voice. And I said to Randy, can you pull us through, you know? And he said, well, I've got this song, he says, and if, if we just take it and make it three chords, we can get through with it. You see? The song originally had about seven chords. Yeah. I didn't even tell them what it was called. I said, when the hook comes, you'll know it. And that's right. what's good about our songs. When the hook comes, everybody knows it right away. And we were putting that down in the studio, and uh, it sounded fairly average. And a great big guy walked in, about a 350-pound guy with 10 feet of hair, and he said, that song sounds like it really needs a piano. And I was frustrated at the time because the song needed something. And I said, go in and try it. He went in and we played it once. And he wrote his own little chart, all kind of X's and crosses and stuff, because there's certain stops in there that he wanted to get. And he did it first take and walked out. Yeah. I got his name to put on the album. He left. I haven't seen him since. <laughs> and here, Taking Care of Business has this great piano, this Elton John kind of thing. We were screaming and yelling when oh, we he was we doing the, this in, in the, the studio. studio. It was so exciting. You know? we, were, we were going crazy. Wow, you can hear the excitement. Great story from Fred Turner and Randy Bachman of BTO talking about taking care of business. This is a special Canada Day edition of Famous Lost Words. Christopher, that's Sean Mendez from 2018, a very powerful song, In My Blood. Well, Tom, he's 21 now. Yeah. And he is a superstar, this guy. He's the pride of Pickering, Ontario. And uh, his career started only five years ago with his debut album, Handwritten. It opened at number one on Billboard at age 17. Wow. In the meantime, he's won eight Junos, received three Grammy nominations, and was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. 
He's a wonderful artist, and he's going to be around for a long time. Mendez has had therapy for anxiety issues, and he dealt with it head-on, using his private life as the material for the song In My Blood. The guy took a risk, earned a lot of respect, and created a smash hit that he talks about in this interview. I think the, there's nothing that's going to progress humans as one than people just speaking in truth. Mm -hmm. I, that's not, that sounds mumbled, but I mean, do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's just like being truthful about how you feel and what you think and allowing yourself to kind of open up because the suppression of how you feel is what creates, I think, darkness, you know? And so for me, I was obviously very nervous to release a song that was vulnerable like that. The second it came out, I had this big weight off my shoulders realizing that every person in the world intimately on a personal level may connect with that and it may help them. And uh, it was a really big moment for me. M meant more to me than any other song I've ever released. Wow, that could be the perfect combination of a great pop melody wrapped around a very important message. Sean Mendez singing about his own anxiety in that song, very powerful, In My Blood. Okay, so Christopher, we've talked about some of the greatest Canadian songs of all time with the songwriters in many cases, and I want to talk about this song, one of the biggest hits ever by a Canadian artist. That's Atlanta Miles from 1990 in Black Velvet, written by my friend and co-host of this show, Christopher Ward. So, Christopher, let's talk about how that song came to be. I don't even know where to start. Are the roots of the song that great bass that starts the song and then it just gives a vibe and then you write from there? Or did you have an idea about lyrically what you wanted to say right away and then the music came second? Take us through the creation of Black Velvet. It did stem from the lyrics. Um, Much Music had sent me on assignment on a Greyhound bus with a cameraman and 40 Elvis fanatics to go to Memphis for the 10th anniversary of the death of the King, baby. And um, so we did. It was an amazing story, but I had lots of time on my hands on the bus and was making notes and was reading a book called, um, I can't remember, it was about Elvis and his mother. I think it was called Elvis and Gladys. Right. And there was just some really, really interesting details about him um, in, in that book. And, and one of them was uh, the writer of the book had gone to visit Tupelo, Mississippi, where Elvis grew up and went to the church that he went to and, and went and saw the preacher exhorting the congregation and falling down on one knee dramatically. And it occurred to her that that's where Elvis got his stage moves from, which is where the concept of a new religion that'll bring you to your knees came from. Oh. And sometimes for a songwriter, all you need is one kind of core idea and you can build out from that which is what I did um, the um, the groove of the song was just one where I'm sure I drove the people who lived below me nuts <laughs> because I'd be sitting there and just going over and over on the guitar you know the just until something comes but that's one of the oldest grooves of all time it's called a shuffle beat as you right. as a drummer know yeah and um you know it stems from blues songs and as as robert plant said to me when he heard the song and i'm sorry for name dropping but this is true and it's funny he said oh christopher it's just a bloody blues song with a chorus man 
<laughs> and I had to go, uh, haven't you? Never mind. Yeah. yeah. Yes, <laughs> no, I didn't. Oh, exactly. I know where you were going to go with this. No, haven't no. you once or twice maybe played a couple of blues songs? With a chorus. <laughs> with a chorus, yes. Anyway, we were working on songs for Alana's first album, and Dave Tyson, her producer, said... Um, you know what would be great would be if we had a shuffle. And I've said, oh, well, I, I have one that I've been working on. I, I hadn't finished it yet, but I was still working on it. I had the verse and the chorus. I had most of it. And Alana just loved it and immediately started wailing away on the song. It was one of those things that she connected with it immediately. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dave, Dave said, so do you have a bridge for the song? And I said, no. And he said, well, do you mind if I try to write something? I said, yeah, absolutely. So he went home and wrote the the um, music for the, you know, every word of every song that it yeah. sang was for you, that section. So that was Dave's um, contribution. That's great. And a val- valuable one it was. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of how it came together as a song. And uh, tell me about the actual recording session. So when you guys finally uh, lock it down in the studio, I've heard various stories that uh, it was a hot day and, you know, basically the song and the singer were kind of stripped down. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think we were working in a studio with no air conditioning. Okay, <laughs> I recall got it. The day that she did, the day she did her vocal, but she, you know what? And I don't know whether it just made the voice more supple or what her reasoning was, but she always loved singing uh, in in really warm uh, facility. So of course, the rest of it just baked, but that was fine. She got what she wanted. That's great, and she delivered a beautiful vocal. So. But yeah, I think she was in her bathing suit for that one. <laughs> <laughs> so you record the song, it becomes uh, you know part of that album, it's released as a single. What happens? Where does it catch on first? Well, it was a single in Canada. It wasn't huge. I mean, it followed up the song Love Is, which was her lead single, which had right. done really well. Yes. Um, and the record was, was successful, but... Um, what happened was that there were some border stations in the U.S., Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and Missoula, Montana, <laughs> there where you know they they people had been hearing the song from stations just north of uh, the border in Canada and started requesting it at their local stations. And um, once that happened, Atlantic Records went, "Oh, well, if we can make it a hit successfully in a small setting, we know what to do with that." And that's what major labels were sort of best at was you know blowing things up making them real big so um yeah it it just uh it it took off from those two tiny little little cities and then come award season uh what happened then you were successful at the juno awards because of that song were you not yes dave and i were uh we were the songwriters of the year which is the biggest for me the biggest honor that there is at the junos and still kind of humbling to think about it yes and then she also won a bunch of uh, junos yes and what about the Grammy Awards? Yeah, she won the Grammy Award for um, Female Rock Single of the Year or Vocalist of the Year. So okay. I'm, can you believe I just can't remember the name of the actual <laughs> title of the award? But but it was a Grammy. We know that much. That's great. <laughs> Sorry, Elena. <laughs> I, I'm going to hear about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, Christopher, it's a great success story. And I know that you and Alana have a very, very long history. And I know that you're still in touch and still great friends to this day. So please offer our best wishes to her. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. Say hi to Atlanta for us. I will do, Tom, and thank you. Well, that does it for part one of our two-part special on the greatest Canadian songs of all time. Part two coming up on the weekend, including... Burton Cummings and Randy Bachman, agreeing and yet 
disagreeing <laughs> about the Guess Who's biggest hit record. Yep, they sure do. Famous Lost Words is produced by Adam Karsh, executive producer Rob Farina. Special thanks to Rob Basile and the gang at Orbit Media. You can get caught up on past episodes of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Happy Canada Day, everyone. Happy Canada Day, everyone.